out of your driveways and you made it to church, even for me that was a struggle to want to and you know I have much more strong motivation than you do. This is my job. So thank you for coming out and uh, I hope to have a great Sunday morning with you as we continue to be shaped by the Word of God. This morning we start a new, uh, brand new series. We're looking at the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The Apostle John, who is one of Jesus' disciples, wrote three small little letters uh, to different churches. In fact, we don't really know that much about who these churches were. We, we, we think that there is a series of them, but we do know that these books, especially 1 John, was written to churches that were in a situation of chaos and confusion. And we know this not from background study, but we know it from the internal evidence of what the book says itself. We won't this morning, but in future weeks, we will see that the church that John is writing to in 1 John had experienced incredible uh, division due to a series of false teachers, a group of false teachers teaching all kinds of different things, both wrong beliefs and wrong ways of action, wrong behaviors. And so John, the apostle, writes to this church or these churches experiencing this chaos and confusion to try to give them some tests, to try to help them understand how can they know that they belong to God. And so I've entitled this series, How Do I Know? Because that's what the book of 1 John is all about, telling us how we can know we belong to God. This little book written 2,000 years ago, I am excited to see how it shapes our community. And it's going to shape us in these ways. It is going to offer assurance to those of you who are really and genuinely and authentically seeking after God. And it's going to make those of us who are confidently complacent in our faith and show little evidence of walking in the light and little evidence of loving others feel, uh, feel much less assured. Assurance. That is really what this book is all about. Sometimes it feels like nothing in life is certain, doesn't it? I've heard some people say that's why they like math, because two plus two always equals four. I can't really relate to you if you like math. I hate it. But uh, I do understand the desire to have something that is certain. One area that most people struggle with assurance more than any other, maybe, is as it, come, as it relates to the relationship with God. And there are all kinds of questions that swirl around in our heads when we consider this, isn't there? Does God exist? Does God really love me? What happens, uh, what happens after death? Is there a heaven or some kind of perfect future reality? If there is, will I get to be a part of it? Can God really forgive me for what I've done? All of these questions swirl around in our head. And it doesn't matter whether we've not been to church in years or never been to church or if we've been to church for years. We all have these questions swirl around in our heads. In my faith tradition growing up, I can remember going to countless uh, revival-type meetings where the, Bap the Baptist preacher would really freak you out about hell. And I made tons of conversions to Christ because I just didn't want to go there, you know? And I grew up in the church, I think all of us have these kind of questions. They swirl around in our head, and so little feels certain. But John enters into the fray with this little book. It's only five chapters. First John. And his implicit purpose, his stated purpose, is to give 
you and I assurance that we belong to God. He does this by giving us eight different tests. They're really test questions. Test questions, and he gives us a right answer and a wrong answer. And if you have the wrong answer, you shouldn't feel assurance. You should not feel sure about your faith and in your relationship with God. But if you have the right answer, the answer that he talks about, then you should. And so for these next eight weeks, we are going to look at these test questions and these answers, and I am almost certain that all of us will be surprised and delightfully so at what he says. Not many men use that word, and probably I wouldn't too if I hadn't thought about it. Delightfully so. <laughs> Happily so. Yeah? What John teaches us is something worth hearing. And so, with no further ado, let's get to the first test question. The first test question, the one that John starts his entire epistle, his poetic epistle with, is this. How do you look at your sin? How do you look at your sin? This is his first question. All of us have come into confrontation with our sin, even if we deny our sin. How do you look at your sin? Let's take a look at the text together. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. If you're using the blue Bibles in front of us, you can turn to page 985 and you can follow along. How do you look at your sin? Let's hear what John has to say. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at it with our hands and have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and which has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and what we have heard, so that you may uh, have fellowship with us. My page keeps getting stuck. So that you might have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, God, out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, for he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So before we get into test question number one, how do you look at your sin? I want to start by first introducing the book so that you get the broader picture of these test questions and how they fit into the context. And really this happens in verses 1 through 4 of 1 John. It is kind of uh, his prologue. It is where he tells us the purpose of why he is writing. First off, notice that John includes himself, even though he is the author, he includes himself with a group of others. He says, we have heard, we have seen, we have touched. This we 
is the apostles. It is the disciples, those who personally walked with Jesus. And notice that the foundation of what John is saying here is not a philosophy that he has thought in his head, that he has made up. What John is reporting in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, is perhaps the most sensory of all the verses in the Bible. He says what he is reporting is what he has seen with his eyes, what he has heard with his ears, what he has touched with his hands. The only senses he leaves out, which would be kind of word, weird, what, what I have smelled with my nose and what I have tasted with my mouth, that wouldn't be, although I guess there was probably a time when Jesus smelled and they smelled him, but that really isn't, you know, applicable here. But what he's saying is he's connecting his experience with Jesus to what he has seen, what he has heard, what he has touched. Now, he gives us a name for Jesus, doesn't he? And it's a name that is familiar to those of us who have read the Gospel of John and maybe remember John chapter 1. And it is the word of life. If you remember in the prologue of John, uh, the gospel, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. This word is Jesus himself, and how do we know this? Verse 2 goes on, and it even gives us a little more background. The life appeared, this word of life, the life appeared, and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you eternal life. Now, when many of you hear that language, eternal life, you probably think of a destination. It is the place you go when you die. But that is not what John is speaking about, is it? And we know this from the text. We proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. The eternal life that John is speaking about in verse 2 is not a place but a person. It is Jesus himself. It reminds me of what John, the same author, the apostle, writes in John chapter 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that you may know the Father through the Son. It is almost as if eternal life is not a future, although it is future. It is, starts in the present, and it starts with the relationship that we have with God through Jesus. This is eternal life, which has appeared to us, which we have seen which we have heard, which we have touched. The text goes on and says why he is proclaiming what he has experienced. And the proclamation of why he does it is so that we might, in verse 3, have fellowship with the Father and the Son and with each other. Do you see that in verse 3? He is proclaiming to us the good news of Jesus so that we might have fellowship. Now, this is a kind of a church word, but really all that fellowship means is that we might share with, share in, participate with life with God, with Jesus, and with each other. In fact, verse 3 perhaps gives us a good sense of what the church is meant to be. It is meant to be a, a sharing in with each other into the life of Christ, a sharing with each other. And so this language in verse 3 of fellowship, of sharing, of participation, is the language of family. It is the language of those of us who have been captured by the beauty and the promise of Jesus, finding that they come to belong to a fellowship, a family, where we belong to God and we belong to each other. And notice in verse 4, all of what John is recording and telling us is so that his joy 
our joy. Looking back to verse 1 and 2, we. The apostles' joy might be complete. That their joy might be complete. And I think that's really because for those who've been captured by the beauty and the promise of Jesus, there is nothing that brings that person more joy than to see another person captured by the beauty of Jesus. There's something about experiencing something that you've already experienced again and again that is so satisfying, but there is something about having someone else experience something that has transformed you that is just amazing. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. I watch them every single year, all the movies, which now is six, and each one of them is like three hours. So that's, what is it, three times, that's like 18 hours of my life, you know, every year. And every year I rewatch them, every year I enjoy them. But right now, my kids are nine, seven, and four, and they just don't have the stomach for those orcs quite yet. I can tell that. My wife can tell that. If we watched that movie, we would be dealing with nightmares, and I wouldn't be sleeping as well, and I'd get cranky, and it just would all be bad, you see? And I'm really looking forward to when they're old enough, and we can have movie marathons, and we can watch Lord of the Rings together. And I've watched them 10, 12 times each, but there's going to be something unique about experiencing them with my kids. You see, that my joy, our joy may be complete. Because when you've been captured by the beauty and the promise of who Jesus is and what he offers and how he's transforming everything, there is nothing more joyful than to see others transformed. And I think about 1 John 1.4, and I think about our mission, you know, of our church, the reason this church exists, to introduce people to Jesus and follow him together. And I think... There's nothing manipulative or coercive about it. It is just simply, and I pray it for you regularly, because I'm a pastor, that you might be transformed by the beauty of Jesus and that you might share the beauty of Jesus with others. And we pray for those we love, and we ask God's Spirit to open up people's eyes so that they might see the beauty of Jesus. And it is all to the beauty of Jesus that we turn this morning when we look at this first test which has everything to do with sin. These tests, there'll be eight of them, these tests relate to us seeing the beauty of Jesus and us having fellowship with God, a relationship with God, a participation with God, and a participation with each other, being made into a family, a fellowship. And these tests, depending on how you answer these test questions, will show you whether you are on the side of the light or the side of the darkness, the side of joy or the side of despair. And so the first test has everything to do with sin. And now for many of you, you may think to yourself, sin is not a happy topic. Why does the pastor always talk about sin? And the reason I do is because I do believe sin is a happy topic. Sin when viewed correctly, helps us to see the beauty and the love of God through Jesus in a way that nothing else does. And so we see 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, introduces this question, how do you view your sin? This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness... We do not, we lie and do not live out the truth, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. This idea of walking in the light 
is the first major theme. There are only two of them in the book of First John. There's eight questions that he raises. There are, five, or there are two themes. Walking in the light is the first theme. The second one is, be, is going to be all about loving one another. And you see it in chapter 3, verse 11. And in fact, you don't even have to turn in the Bible to another page. It's at the bottom of page 987. You see the language in its parallel. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. This language is parallel to chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare it to you. This is the message. God is light. We should love one another. These are the two major themes of the book of 1 John. And the first five test questions have to do with walking in the light, and the last three ones have to do with walking in love, loving one another. The first test question, then, is all about sin. If we claim that we have never sinned, we walk in the darkness, and the light of God is not in us, or the truth of God. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we are purified. So the natural question here then is, what does it mean or what does it look like to walk in the light? And my guess is here that most of us will misunderstand this if we are not really careful in looking at the text and careful in our thinking. And the reason I think we will miss this is that all of us allow our minds to be uh, misled Due to, a, uh, due to something in all of us that causes us to see this in, inappropriately. And that thing that exists in all of our minds is guilt. We are often so motivated by guilt that when we look at this language of having fellowship with God means we must walk in the light as it relates to our sin, most of us are motivated by guilt and automatically will start to think that if we are to walk in the light, we must purify ourselves from sin before we can have fellowship with God. But that is not true. Let me tell you a little story to illustrate it. Imagine with me that you are just graduated college, and for the first time in your life, you're going to be making real money and you're going to get a real apartment. You'll no longer be dependent on your parents, and your parents are excited about that, and you are going to get your own apartment. You're going to go earn, own your, have your first job where you're making a salary which actually would support you. And you can start taking care of your debts and pay your rent and stuff like that. And you can do it for the next 40 years. And if you're lucky, you can retire. <laughs> Life is wonderful. Now, your parents are so proud of you because you've made it through college. You've landed a real job with all that education. And they want to do something special for you. And they go and buy you a chair. You've got this new apartment. You have no furniture. So they buy you this wonderful chair. If you're a guy, it is super comfortable and it rocks. If you're a girl, it's upholstered in the perfect material. And it has the perfect body to it. I think that's how they talk about chairs. And <laughs> you love this chair. Custom comfortable, expensive. Yeah? And in the first week, you have a bunch of your friends over and you're having pizza and coffee because I don't know why. And who eats pizza and has coffee? But probably a lot of you do that like coffee. I don't like this stuff. But you're having pizza and coffee and you don't, nobody really knows how it happened. But at this big shindig, which your house has no furniture but this custom upholstered chair, a huge coffee stain lands on the chair somehow. And nobody knows how. 
there's no blame to go around, but you're freaking out because your parents spent a lot of money on this chair, and the question that's going on in your mind is, what am I going to do now? And I bet you, if you're anything like me, you'd have a couple different options that would come to your mind. You'd start processing and thinking, how much money do I have, and could I send this chair to get reupholstered quickly enough that my parents will never know, and I can hide the truth from them, and when they come over, they'll see the chair as it was. Or maybe you think to yourself, that's not going to work because I'm in my first week in my new apartment. My parents want to visit me soon, so there's not time to get a new upholstered chair. So maybe what I'll do is I'm going to call my parents and say, you know what, I'm really not feeling well, even though that's a lie. You're really just freaked out about the chair. And you're going to say, I'm really not feeling well. Could we postpone that for another six months? <laughs> you know, it takes a lot of money to save up for a new chair of this magnitude. But you think to yourself, that's kind of weird, and I don't think my parents are going to like that. And then maybe some of you would just get out, like, Resolve or something, whatever cleans stains, and you just start scrubbing that thing like a beast. But the coffee's too deep. It's in the fibers. What what are you going to do? Actually, this little illustration has everything to do with what God, John, is talking about when it comes to walking in the light. We try to deal with our sins in all kinds of different ways. Sometimes we try to hide them long enough to make it better. Sometimes we try to cancel our and disengage from the people who wouldn't accept, who wouldn't like those things so that we can fix things before. Some of us try to scrub to make it clean. But walking in the light actually and unbelievably has nothing to do with making us morally upright so that we can have fellowship with God on our own power. It has nothing to do with becoming morally upright on our own power so that we can have fellowship with God. Walking in the light means simply that we allow the light of who God is and what he has done to shine into our life to expose the stain. Walking in the light actually means, hey, mom and dad, I made a huge stain on the new chair you just made. And here's the thing about this little illustration. Imagine your parents came over then, and they have this like super-duper, seen-on-TV carpet, stain, chair carpet remover of stains. (laughs) And they come over to your house, and miraculously they put this magic stain remover on, and it's all gone. And the chair is good as new. Now, that doesn't really exist in real life. If you really spill that much coffee on a chair, I think you're pretty much up a creek. But unbelievably, surprisingly, when it comes to faith in our relationship with God, it does exist. Walking in the light does not mean you've purified yourself. It means that you go to God and say, I've got a huge stain. When I look at you in comparison to who you are, I see it. Light, you see it? I see it. What can you do? And you'll find that God really is able to purify you from all sin. In fact, that's what 1 John 1, 7 says, doesn't it? For if we walk in light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another. Our relationships with each other are transformed. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So I ask you again, how do you look at your sin? 
How do you look at your sin? John says that a surprising number of people deny they're sinners in the first place. He says that is one of the marks of answering this question incorrectly. We could say unchristianly. A surprising number of people deny that they are sinners in the first place. You might have been having a hard time believe me, believing me that this is what John is saying a moment ago. Does God really purify us of our sins simply by acknowledging that they exist and walking in the light? But that's exactly what he's saying, and I know it because of the text that follows. 1 John 1.8, look at it with me. If we claim we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Do you see, John the Apostle is saying, Walking in the light is not claiming to have no sin. In fact, he says, if you claim that you don't sin, you would deceive yourself and you don't have the truth. And he says it in another way in verse 10, doesn't he? If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, God, out to be a liar. And the word is not in us. You see, it is not about denying of sin or cleaning up our sin in our own power. It is simply about walking in the light and having the light of God reveal our sin to show us that there is a stain. And when we do that, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. And yet, a surprising number of people deny that they are sinners in the first place. That's what John is saying. How do you view your sin? Many deny, some diminish, and it's always easy to diminish sin. One of my professors in seminary always said, all heresies begin with the diminishment of sin. It's always easy to diminish your sin, and it's really easy. You just look around at other people around you, and you overlook the people who are doing better than you, and you focus in on the ones who aren't, and you think, dear God, thank, me, thank you that I'm not like that man. Jesus actually had a little teaching on this, didn't he? He didn't look very favorably on that attitude. He told a story about a Pharisee, a religious leader, who went into the temple to pray and said, Dear God, thank you that I am not like that man, a tax collector and a sinner. And then he recorded Jesus the prayer of the tax collector. Dear God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You see? Walk in the light. Dear God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so walking in the light does not have to do with denial. And many of us try to deny. Many of us try to diminish. Perhaps some of you in this room have taken another strategy and you're just trying to scrub the chair away. And you're trying to scrub it until it doesn't even exist, you know? And you're working so hard to make up for what is wrong with you so that others might accept you and so that God might accept you. Or maybe, and I hear this all the time and it's always sad, or maybe you're a person who thinks, God and others could never forgive what I've done. And you just throw your hands up in despair. No matter whether you do any of these three strategies, deny or diminish, that's one. Try to work and overcome your own sin. Or just give your hands up in despair. These may all be common ways of dealing with sin, but they are all decidedly and distinctly unchristian in their approach. If we are to walk in the light as he is in the light and have to have fellowship with God and with each other, 
we must answer the question, how do I view my sin? How do you view your sin in a different way? And John gives us the answer. Not denial, not diminishment, not overcoming it in our own power, and certainly not despair. For the good news of the message of Jesus Christ is that no one is beyond receiving and being loved by Jesus. That is the truth. And the way to walk in the light and to view your sin in such a way that will bring you lasting joy and fellowship and belonging, not just with God, of course with God, and primarily with God, but with each other, is if we view our sin in three ways. First, if we are to walk in the light, we must own our sin. If we are to walk in the light, we must own our sin. For the person who says, I have not sinned, deceives himself and makes God out to be a liar. If we are to walk in the light as he is in the light, we must own our own sin. It is only if you have owned your own sin that you can ever be captured by the beauty and the promise of Jesus. We must own our own sin. The stain is big, but God's love is bigger. That's a really loose paraphrase of a great reformer, Martin Luther, who said, let your sins be great and your Savior be greater. We must own our own sin. Second, if we are to walk in the light as it relates to our sin, we must confess our sins. Confession of sin is very closely related to owning our sin. The language of confession means to agree with. So if you confess something to your spouse that you've done is, is wrong, if you think about it this way, what you are saying to her is, I've done this thing, it's wrong, and I agree with you that it's wrong. If your wife has a special uh, set of silverware or plates that she never wants you to use except at holiday time, and you use them like common use, and every time she gets mad at you, and you're just like, they're plates, let's use them. You see what's going on? You're not agreeing with her that these plates are special and only for holiday use. But if you use them, this is a really stupid illustration, and you go to her and say, I'm sorry I used those plates. I knew I shouldn't have. It won't happen again. That's confession, saying I shouldn't have done it. Agreeing with. Agreeing with. When we go to God and we confess our sins to God, what we are saying is, what I did is wrong. And this walking in the light does not mean that we haven't sinned. It means that we confess their sins. And in one of the most famous verses in all of 1 John, 1 John 1.9, John says, If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of the most helpful spiritual practices that I engage in personally and regularly is the practice, and I learned it in church as a child growing up, is the practice of daily confessing my sins to God. Daily confessing my sins to God. And I've talked about it before. I have this little routine at night when I go to bed. And I think through my day, and I think of the way that I've acted with other people. And I think of the things I have thought that no one else will know. And I ask myself, are the ways that I have acted and the ways that I have thought, have those matched up with what God wants for me? And you know how I know what God wants for me? I even have a little way of doing this. I always quote to me, 
quote to myself the fruit of the Spirit, which is found in Galatians 5, 22 to 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And you know what it says next? I always love that. Against such there is no law. It doesn't matter... It doesn't matter if you've never been to church before in your life or if you come all the time. Every single person on this world would like a little more love, joy, and peace. That's even the Beatles, right? (laughs) Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Who doesn't want that? And I think to myself, through my day, how have I exhibited love and joy and peace? And if I haven't, I confess it. And I found that the practice itself has not led to me being sinless, but it has led to me creating a pathway for myself. And that's what I've seen after a decade or so of doing it, is it's kind of like a deer path. You ever spin one of those deer paths? The deers walk on the same thing, and it eventually gets worn. And even though nobody trailblazed it, you can kind of follow it. And it's kind of difficult, but you can do it. And it kind of creates this path for you. It hasn't made me sinless, but it's made it easier to walk down the path of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, of goodness, of gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control, because every single day, I am evaluating my life, and I'm thinking about how did I treat other people? How did I treat my wife? How did I treat my kids? How did I treat you all? How did I treat God and behave in my thought life? And I rarely have a day when I have nothing to confess. Rarely. But I have found that my confessions get less. There's a theological word for this, and I won't talk about it long. It's called sanctification. The slow and arduous process of becoming more like Jesus. If we want to walk in the light, we first, we must own our sin. Second, we must confess of our sin. And obviously, John means this last one. He's explicit about it. We must own, or we must repent of our sin. We see it in chapter 2, verse 1. Dear children, and you hear even in this the, the idea of fellowship, the idea of family, and the idea of fatherhood that John is taking on with those he writes to, those who have been misled by false teachers and in many ways are going off into false and bad directions in life. He says, dear children, I write this to you so that you may not sin. He's not saying they will never sin. We've just covered all that. He's saying it's possible to not sin. He's saying the road of sin is not a happy one. The road of sin is not a good one. And that walking in the light leads us to repentance. When we have been captured by the beauty and the love and the promise of Jesus, it does not lead us towards doing whatever the heck we want. It leads us to repentance, turning in the other direction and pursuing love, joy, and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. If we were to walk in the light as we answer the question, how do I view my own sin? The only appropriate answer is we must own our sin, we must confess our sin, and we must repent of our sin. Not because God wants to beat us down, but because God wants to purify us from all unrighteousness and make us a part of his family so that we might have fellowship with God, fellowship with the Son, and fellowship with each other. And I've just noticed 
that sin destroys. It destroys everything in its path. It destroys relationships with each other. It destroys us emotionally. And no matter how many times Freud tries to tell us that it doesn't exist, it's all in your mind, it is a reality that you will confront guilt as much as you'd confront a brick wall if you ran straight into it. And so denying its reality does not lead to joy, but walking in the light does. Confessing, owning, and repenting. And this message, and I love how First John, how John ends this section. This message is not just for those of us who've already been captured by the beauty of Jesus. For the text says in verse 2, And he is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see? This idea of propitiation or atoning just means he covers them all up. He cleanses and purifies us. But notice what the text says. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Because the church is a family, an ever-expanding family that believes that Jesus is the crucified, resurrected, coming again Son of God, and it's always got room for one more. And it doesn't matter how far you've gone. He is the atoning sacrifice for your sins. Not just those who've been captured, but those who are yet to see and to be captured by the beauty of Jesus. And as a church, I pray that we always exist to do that. I pray that you would help us in that effort by exemplifying and showing forth the beauty of Jesus in your life being captured by the beauty of Jesus yourself in natural, non-manipulative ways, helping those you care most deeply about to see the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are a sinner and that Christ's love is greater than your sin. Let me pray for you. Father, I ask that you would transform our hearts by the power of your Spirit to see the beauty of Jesus and what he has done for us. I pray this for those of us who have already seen, that you would keep our vision of God fresh, that we might see the world the way that you do, which compels us to share your love and joy with those who we care about. Help us to own, confess, and repent of our sins so that the power of sin might be broken in our life, and so that we might experience the joy of knowing you and being connected to each other. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.